True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The cry of a new life fills the air. A mother and father shed tears of joy and cuddle their beautiful baby girl. Within just a few hours, a cry of a different kind will fill the air. One of a mother whose child has gone missing, and their tears will no longer be joyful. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 68, Finding Baby Michaela. This episode is sponsored by Dialabed. I cannot tell you how many people have said that the podcast is like a sleep aid for them. Apparently it's not that I'm boring, but rather that I allegedly have a soothing voice. So if you're prone to listening to the podcast while you drift off into dreamland, you probably want to make sure that your bed is supporting a great night's sleep too. It's easy to forget about the little things that insulate us from all the craziness that goes on in the world. But there's a place that's your sanctuary, a place that makes you feel all safe and snuggled up, your bed. But it's not just a bed to you, is it? Beds aren't just a place we open our eyes every day. Beds are more than stitching and cushioning and coil springs. Beds are life and love. Dialabed understands the importance of comfort and makes every single bed with something special. Dialabed makes beds for rest and all the rest. Upgrade your bed today by visiting a Dialabed store or shopping online at dialabed.co.za. A huge thank you to Dialabed for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Natasha Msomi, Kungeka Lolwana, Bianca Kutsia, Yvonne, Michelle Porterfield, Rosie Morgan Penny, Ilse Jordan, Leonie Watson, Ziko Nongrehu, Natasha Udendal, Kim Michelle Jory, Alana Abel, and Laura Kennedy your support on Patreon. Thank you so much everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show with two online businesses providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10 at checkout. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online and you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed, and delivered by PrintCrowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books, or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way 
to keeping the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. Today's case happened 25 years ago. The case is resolved, the perpetrator was caught, and everyone involved has seemingly moved on from the terrible events of that time. So I wondered, should I even cover this case? Is it worth dredging this up, and is it helpful to the victims? That's, after all, is my purpose here. And I decided that, even at the risk that some may be unhappy I'm talking about this, I think the overall benefit that comes from telling this story makes it worthwhile. At the time that this case happened, there was a huge amount of misinformation in the public domain. And the victim's family worked with two journalists to have a book written to dispel the myths and set the record straight. The book is called Baby Michaela, and it was the main resource I used for this episode. The book was first published in 1996, and although you'll still find second-hand copies, it's no longer in mass distribution. It is for this reason that I decided to go ahead with an episode on this case. While the book may one day no longer be available, with a podcast episode, there will always be a record of the facts around this case. I also think that by talking about this case now, when we live in a very different time with regard to mental health perspectives and the safety of children, we can also dive deeper into the themes and warnings this case provides. In the years since Michaela was returned to her parents, we've also sadly seen many other infant abductions, and so perhaps we can learn from this case while also understanding the true facts of a case which forms a very important part of South African true crime history. There was another decision I had to make when researching this case and putting together this episode. Should I try to make contact with anyone involved? I have managed to track down quite a few of the role players in this case on both sides of the coin, but I chose not to make contact at this time. The Hunter family have made it very clear on several occasions that they just want to be left in peace. And when you hear what they went through, this will make complete sense. I know that it is entirely possible that the perpetrator and or her family will also hear this podcast, and I hope that they feel I have fairly portrayed the facts. Should anyone who was directly impacted by Michaela's kidnapping wish to speak with me after they hear this episode, I would gladly do so. But I think it is possible for me to tell the story without pushing any boundaries at this time. So, without further ado, let's get into episode 68, Finding Baby Michaela. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Alison and Bruce Hunter met when Alison was studying at hotel school and Bruce was studying electrical engineering at Witz Technicon. 
the couple married in 1990 and spent two years in Sasselberg before moving to Crystal Park, where they purchased their first home. Alison fell pregnant soon after the couple moved into their new home, and the future looked bright for the hunters. Both Alison and Bruce were very close to their families. Alison's family lived in Gauteng, and Bruce's parents lived in KwaZulu-Natal, and they visited as often as they could. Both sets of soon-to-be grandparents were ecstatic to hear that Alison was pregnant and couldn't wait to hold their bundle of joy in their arms. Working in the hotel industry meant that Alison was working very long hours, and her pregnancy exhausted her when paired with this rigorous schedule. As part of their preparations for the birth, Alison and Bruce had chosen Marymount Hospital as the place where they would have their first child delivered. Their obstetrician had recommended the facility, which was one of the very few hospitals that still exclusively focused on maternity services. When the matron on duty showed the hunters around the facility that day, and they paid their deposit to book Alison's bed, she could have no idea that the confidence, charming man and his more reserved but equally friendly and kind wife would soon deliver one of Marymount's most well-known babies. Alison was due on the 2nd of May 1994. Toward the end of her pregnancy, she found it really difficult to sleep, and she would spend the early hours of the morning wandering around the house and sipping tea on the couch. And it was there, in their lounge, in the early hours of the 3rd of May, that she felt the first twinges of labour. Alison is not the type of person to create a scene, so she waited quite a while before she let Bruce know that she thought she needed to go to the hospital. Bruce was up in a flash, and although most first labours can be quite lengthy, by the time the hunters arrived at Marymount at 8.30am, Alison was already halfway to the 10 centimetre dilation she would need to start delivery. Michaela Hunter would take her first breath around 2.30pm that afternoon. Toward the end of the labour, Alison was exhausted and forceps were eventually used to deliver Michaela. As a result, the baby would have two small marks on her face, which is not uncommon in forcep-assisted delivery. These marks would be incredibly important later on. Another important event in Michaela's delivery occurred when Alison needed assistance with pain and she was given a pethidine injection quite late in the birthing process. As a result, she was very drowsy for much of the 3rd of May. After Michaela's delivery, she and Alison were moved into a semi-private room at the end of the hallway. The room had two beds, and each bed was surrounded by curtains that could be drawn to completely isolate each bed. Michaela was taken to the nursery down the hall so that Alison could rest and recover. Later that day, Bruce's brother and his wife came to visit and meet their niece. They would be the only family members to see Michaela in the hospital. When Bruce's parents heard that their granddaughter had been born, they started making arrangements to travel from KZN. 
Alison's parents had decided to let the couple rest on that first night and instead visit the next day. It was a decision they would come to forever regret. That night, Bruce and Alison were in the hospital room visiting with Michaela. She'd been sleeping so soundly that they almost didn't want to take any photographs of her that first night and risk disturbing her. Bruce, however, quickly snapped two photographs of his daughter. Again, this would become an important point later on. While the couple were admiring their newborn, that night around 8.30pm, a woman popped her head into their room. Alison would later say that she immediately thought the woman was another new mother, as she appeared to be wearing a hospital gown, and she had a towel draped over her shoulders. The woman said hello to the couple and asked Alison what she'd had. She told the woman she'd had a girl and returned with the same question. The woman did not respond to that, though, and instead said she was looking for Mrs. Fundamava. The hunters told her they didn't know such a person, and the woman moved on. Alison was still very drowsy and didn't focus on the woman's face, so she would not recognise her when she came back the next day. Bruce, however, was alert and did see the woman's face, but he would not be present the next day. Bruce left the hospital about half an hour later. Michaela was taken back to the nursery, and Alison tried to get some sleep. She struggled, though, with the medication and new hormones running through her system, and she was awake when the nurse brought Michaela to her at 4am to feed. A few hours later, Bruce arrived to visit, and Michaela was brought back to Alison to feed again. A new mother was admitted to Alison's room shortly after this, and the head matron visited both Alison and the new intake. Bruce headed off to work, and the matron left Alison's hospital room to continue her rounds. Just a few minutes after the matron had left the room, while Alison was sitting with Michaela in her arms, another woman appeared at the foot of her bed. The woman was dressed in a white cheesecloth-type dress, and she had a badge pinned to her chest. She looked like a nurse, Alison immediately thought. The woman had dark blonde hair that appeared to have been dyed from a darker spot that appeared at her crown, and her hair was loose and hung just past her shoulders. The woman smiled and told Alison she was from the Red Cross, and she was giving a demonstration to a group of unmarried mothers on how to bathe their baby. She wanted to know if Alison would mind if she used Michaela to carry out the demonstration to the group. She would be gone for just 20 minutes, the woman said. She would only be on the next floor. Alison says that she immediately felt uneasy and asked the woman if she could accompany her. The woman told her it wouldn't be necessary and she should rather rest. After a few moments of internal reasoning, Alison told herself she was being unreasonable and overprotective, and she agreed to let the woman take Michaela for the demonstration. The woman lifted Michaela out of Alison's arms and asked her if she'd just been fed. Alison responded that Michaela hadn't really taken much milk in because she'd fallen asleep while feeding. 
The woman then seemed to notice that there was another patient in the room and asked Alison about the gender of the other woman's baby. When Alison told her it was a boy, the woman's interest seemed piqued, and she asked Alison if she thought the woman would allow her to use her baby instead. Alison told her that she didn't think she would because the baby had only just been born. Without another word, the woman turned and left the room with Michaela. A few minutes later, a nurse popped her head into Alison's room and asked her if she was ready for Michaela to go back to the nursery. Alison told the nurse that her baby was downstairs. Ten minutes later, the nurse appeared again and asked Alison if she was ready now. Alison was a bit annoyed and barked at the woman that she'd just told her that Michaela had gone downstairs for the bath demo. The nurse looked at her quizzically and then left without another word. It would later emerge that this nurse had thought Alison was hiding Michaela so that she didn't have to go back to the nursery. Apparently this was not an uncommon thing for new mothers to do when they wanted to spend more time with their babies, and some would hide their newborns under the blankets to avoid the child being returned to the nursery as were hospital regulations. At 9.25am, when Alison realised that much more than 20 minutes had passed and the woman still had not returned with Michaela, she got up and went to the nurse's station. She asked the nurse there if she could call down to find out if the bath demo was finished yet and when Michaela would be returned to her. She was met with a blank stare and then the horrifying words that would start Alison Hunter's nightmare. Marymount had never done bath demos for outside groups and they most certainly were not doing any that day. The hospital erupted into chaos when nurses realised that Michaela Hunter was nowhere to be found. Staff searched every inch of the building while Alison sat frozen in terror on a chair in the nurses' station. Bruce says that when he got the call that he needed to immediately come to the hospital, he thought for sure that either his wife or his daughter had died. The hospital was locked down and police were called. Despite the JP police station being less than five minutes away from Marymount Hospital, it would take a second call and almost two hours before two young officers sauntered into the building. When the matron explained what had happened, the officers told her that she had to wait 24 hours to report a missing person. The matron stared at the policeman, incredulous, she asked them if they thought that a newborn infant could possibly have decided to go missing of her own volition. The woman and those that would look into this early chaotic investigation would later say that it was very clear that these officers were in no way equipped to deal with a situation of this kind, and they were very simply going through the procedure book they'd been taught. Eventually it was determined that this was a case for the Child Protection Unit, and four hours after Michaela had gone missing, they arrived on scene and she was officially registered as a missing person. 
the initial investigation revealed that Alison had not been the only woman who'd been approached by the kidnapper. Several other mothers reported that a woman had entered their rooms, asking about the gender of their babies. The women with boys had the longest interactions with the kidnapper, with one new mother getting to the point of actually placing her son in the woman's arms before changing her mind, as her son had just had a bath. And the incidents hadn't just happened that day either. The kidnapper, it seemed, had been in the hospital the night before as well. When the hunters heard this, they remembered the woman that had asked about the gender of Michaela. It's emerged that this woman had also been seen by nurses wandering around the hallways. When approached, she said she was looking for Mrs. Fundamava and was sent down to reception. A pharmacist who'd been running late that morning had arrived at work at 9.15am. She reported seeing a woman walking out of the building with a large bag, which she carried awkwardly. After hearing about Michaela's abduction, she told police that the woman had seemed intent on blending into the background and stuck to the perimeter wall and didn't move out into the open when she walked. With all of the sightings, police were able to put together an identicate of the woman. At some point during her wanderings through the hall, the woman had tied her hair up, but she'd done it in such a way that others commented on how untidy her hair appeared. The hunters were understandably terrified for the safety of their baby. At first, Alison felt like it had to be some terrible misunderstanding, and at any minute the woman would walk through the door with her baby and wonder what all the fuss was about. Although no one blamed Alison, she admits that she held a huge amount of guilt in those early days. This only became worse when she realised that other mothers had been approached for their babies, but she had been the only one that ended up handing hers over. The reality, though, was very different, but Alison would only discover this much later. Initially, the press around the case exploded. The publicity was a necessary tool to get the public looking for Michaela and reporting any women arriving home with babies that didn't belong to them. Several such instances were reported, with members of the public even calling police on one poor woman who was a new mother and looked uncomfortable with her baby, as almost all new mothers do. But this woman found herself surrounded by police, suddenly questioning her. Most journalists, though, were pretty certain that the case was going to be a flash in the pan. It wasn't entirely uncommon for babies to be snatched, but they were almost always returned or recovered within days of abduction, a week at the most. So most press houses were not keen on allocating too many resources to the story. Alison was moved to a private room away from prying eyes. Bruce and Alison's families were as devastated as the couple. Bruce's father, who'd been eagerly awaiting the arrival of his first granddaughter, had to be put on tranquilizers to cope. In the days after Michaela's abduction, Mary Mount moved all the babies from the nursery to their mother's rooms, and terrified mothers struggled to sleep, with many checking out much earlier than they ordinarily would have. 
Expectant mothers who had booked to have their babies at Marymount were now uncertain about the safety at the hospital, and the administrators were inundated with questions about their security. The hospital understood these concerns and offered anyone who wanted to cancel their bookings a full refund of their deposits, with no questions asked. Alison left the hospital on the 6th of May. She no longer wanted to be surrounded by strangers, but also felt very torn, leaving without her baby. There had seemingly been no progress in locating Michaela or her kidnapper. The press seemed to have realised that this case may not be like other baby snatchings, because the hunter's arrival at home was met with a barrage of press attention. The couple couldn't walk outside their door without photographers snapping pictures over the wall. While Alison felt trapped in a haze of pain and undefined loss, Bruce did his best to man the phones and face the press. Although they really just wanted their privacy, they also understood that the press was a necessary evil to ensure that as many people as possible knew about Michaela. Early on in the case, the hunters gave out their personal phone number in an article. I completely understand why they did this, and I think even at this early stage they were unsure about whether they could trust police to effectively work all leads. But with their number being made public, they would also be inundated by a huge number of con artists. Unfortunately, this is something that many family members of missing people report happening, and the hunters, their extended family, and even some journalists would eventually find themselves drawn into a very dark underbelly of Johannesburg in the hopes of finding baby Michaela. To the hunters, it felt as though the entire country was waiting, along with them, with bated breath for the return of their baby. They even received flowers and an offer of assistance from Tokyo Sehwale and his wife. Bruce's parents regularly travelled between KZN and Johannesburg to offer assistance and eventually relocated entirely to Johannesburg to be closer to their son in his time of need. Alison's grandmother was hospitalised soon after receiving the news that Michaela had been kidnapped. She was released from hospital but never fully recovered, and a month after Michaela went missing, Alison woke up one morning with a deep sense of dread. She phoned her mother, who told her that her grandmother had just passed away a few hours before. Three months after Michaela went missing, Alison's sister, Robin, gave birth to a baby. At first, the family was unsure how Alison would handle seeing another newborn in the family, but she says she found it comforting to have something positive to put her energy into. Eventually, Alison decided to go back to work. The company she worked for discovered that she had not yet had any trauma counselling and paid for the services of a psychiatrist. Slowly, with the therapist's help, Alison started to accept that what had happened was not her fault and that she had simply been the victim of a crafty criminal. A 40,000 rand reward was issued for any information leading to the safe recovery of baby Michaela. This resulted in many leads flooding in, but also a huge increase in the number of con artists contacting the family. 
one pregnant woman, made a rather strange offer. She told the hunters that they could put out an article saying that she would swap her unborn child for Michaela, and all she wanted in return was a new car. Another man claimed that he had information that Michaela was being held in Hillbrow. Bruce and a group of friends went out to the man's house, and they were shown around what was essentially a private paramilitary base. The man even had an area in his house where he allegedly built bombs. He strung Bruce and his friends along for quite some time before revealing that he and his team would be happy to go and retrieve Michaela. All they needed was petrol money and money for guns. When Bruce asked for some proof that Michaela was indeed at the location the man claimed, he disappeared and was never heard from again. The 90s in South Africa was also, of course, a period of so-called satanic panic, and the panic groupies did not let Michaela's abduction pass them by without adding their own theory to the pot. Bruce and Alison had to listen to call after call, describing how Michaela had been used as a child sacrifice. As is often the case, many people claiming to have psychic powers in various forms also contacted the hunters and their extended family. Now, I've occasionally been criticised for even mentioning that psychics have been consulted in cases. Never mind expressing what their views were, but as far as I'm concerned, if I'm going to tell the story of a case, I can't cherry pick the bits that I think are important. Whether or not a psychic's contribution has ever helped resolve a case in the history of crime investigation is actually unimportant, as far as I'm concerned. The fact that a very ordinary couple, like the Hunters, who by their own admission would never have even thought about psychics before, is the point, because that indicates their level of desperation. And again, that's something I have heard from many families of missing people. We can thank our lucky stars that we do not understand the level of desperation that comes with having a missing family member, especially a missing child. These families will try anything. When the cops aren't producing, when the scientific methods are leading nowhere, yes, they will go sit in front of a person who claims to have abilities that many others don't, because they cannot live with the possibility that it may have helped, and they didn't try it. These desperate attempts to try anything and everything are all part of the story of the trauma these people were living through. So regardless of the personal opinions of anyone listening, this is where these parents found themselves in the months after their baby was stolen from them. They found themselves talking to psychics and sangomas. Michaela's grandparents found themselves sitting with a sangoma for eight hours straight while she tossed bones around. All of the psychics and sangomas told the hunters that Michaela was alive and that she had not been harmed. One even went as far as identifying a specific family living in Cape Town who'd recently adopted a baby. The police actually looked into this family and found that their adoption had been entirely legal and the child was not Michaela.
interestingly, and you can keep this in mind for when we get to that stage of the story, one woman said that Michaela would be returned when the couple she was with began to argue, and she would be returned around large pools of water. Now, neither of those pieces of information would help the hunters find their child, but they are strangely accurate, but also admittedly pretty generic. Bruce and Alison decided five months after Michaela's abduction to pack away her nursery. They could not bear to look at all the clothes and items she wasn't using. Alison gave some of these smaller sized clothes to her sister, and with every month that passed, there were more clothes that her own daughter would have outgrown wherever she was, and there was no way she'd ever wear them. A month after they finished packing away the nursery they'd set up for their daughter, Alison discovered that she was pregnant again. At first, both Bruce and Alison were terrified that if her pregnancy became public, the kidnapper would think they no longer needed their daughter back. They tried to keep the new baby a secret for as long as possible, and when the news did eventually break, the hunters did their best to emphasise in the press that this new baby was in no way a replacement for Michaela. They wanted their daughter back, but to cope emotionally, they also needed to give their love to the child Alison was now pregnant with. The push to find Michaela was taken up countrywide, and a formal campaign, the hunt for baby Michaela, was formalised as an NPO and attracted several big-name sponsors. Unfortunately, it also very quickly went sour. The hunters did not have the emotional capacity to head it up, and there was a tiff between several people who wanted to take public control of the campaign, which eventually turned on the hunters, attempting to paint them in the public eye as money-hungry, which could not have been further from the truth. These people did not ask for any of this. They did not want campaigns or sponsors or publicity or NPOs. All they wanted was their daughter. That was it. When Alison's new pregnancy eventually did become public, Park Lane Clinic contacted the hunters and offered them one of their very private, exclusive birthing suites at medical aid rates. Everyone just wanted Alison and Bruce to feel safe and enjoy this delivery, and when Alison did give birth to their baby boy Daniel on the 3rd of August 1995, 15 months after Michaela disappeared, she said she felt quite weird to have such a huge amount of security around her, but admitted she did feel safe. In the background, during the 15 months that Michaela had been missing to that point, the hunters had experienced and immersed themselves in a seriously dark underworld that they didn't even know existed. At one point, they believed it was the key to finding their daughter. The hunters were contacted by the previous owner of a sex work establishment, an Italian woman who called herself Antonella. The woman claimed that she believed Michaela had been the victim of a baby trafficking ring run by a local doctor. The hunters, as well as some journalists, including Deborah Patter, who would go on to co-author the book 
baby Michaela, were from this point pulled into the world of sex work. Bruce's mother would infiltrate the Johannesburg sex work scene in an attempt to uncover the truth behind Antonella's claims. What she found astounded her. A woman named Veronica, who'd been a sex worker, was alleged to have been the person who'd stolen Michaela. Veronica had committed suicide a month after Michaela went missing, and other sex workers that Bruce's mom and others spoke to admitted being terrified of the doctor implicated in the baby trafficking ring. Investigations by Deborah Patter would reveal that there appeared to be some link between senior members of the police and several sex work establishments. The hunters and others spent months on these leads. The journalists and Bruce's mother found themselves in some really dangerous situations. Essentially, the story was that a baby brokering deal had gone south. The unnamed doctor had allegedly arranged a 250,000 rand deal with a wealthy couple to purchase a baby. The doctor would allegedly sell babies birthed by the sex workers at various establishments. The reason that this particular deal had gone wrong, Antonella said, was that it was discovered that the baby was HIV positive. This, she claims, is why Michaela was stolen, to complete this deal. After much investigation, it was uncovered that Antonella had concocted the entire story to get back at the unnamed doctor. He had allegedly purchased one of her sex work establishments from her, and he had short paid her. So, in turn, she decided to implicate him in Michaela's kidnapping. Police had actually become involved in investigating this lead, and it had led to the arrest of a sex worker who had allegedly passed Michaela on to the doctor. When it was revealed that the story was just a concocted ploy, the woman was released. Months of dangerous work had gone into looking down these dodgy rabbit holes, and it had all led nowhere. The only good thing that came from this was that Michaela's case was in the news again, and members of the public, who may by now have assumed the baby had been recovered, were now aware that she was still missing. The hunters were never confident in the police's work on their daughter's case, this was one of the main reasons they'd given out their own telephone number to the media and why they personally tracked down leads. Although the full extent of just how poor this investigation was would only be revealed much later, when a member of the CPU went public with his concerns, the hunters say that within weeks of Michaela going missing, they stopped receiving any feedback from police. The only time they spoke to police was if they phoned the detectives in charge. On one occasion, Bruce was told by a major in the SAPS to stop bugging him by phoning him all the time. The couple received several calls from people saying that they had called in tips to the police, which had never been followed up on. A CPU detective would later say that eight months after Michaela's disappearance, when the case was handed over to yet another investigator, there were still leads that had come through on day one that had not been followed up on by police.
This man said that he got the distinct feeling that police were basically waiting for someone to phone and say they had Michaela, and the resolution of this nightmare would in no way be prompted by police. In order to tell this story, it is necessary for us to jump over to another part of Gauteng, a place just 20 kilometers away from the hunter's home in Crystal Park, and another family, this time a rather blended one. Sonia Crocker, as she was known at this time, had a difficult childhood. Her father had died when she was just seven years old, and her mother was reportedly emotionally distant, seeming to prefer Sonia's sister, Adele. She was born Sonia Hubert, and struggled significantly after her father's death, running away from home and looking for love in all the wrong places. Sonia was just 14 years old when she fell pregnant with her first child. She left school and it soon became clear, almost understandably, that she was in no way mature enough to look after a baby. When Sonia's daughter was one year old, she'd spent most of her life living with Sonia's mother, and the woman convinced Sonia that the best course of action was for her to give up the child for adoption. In the interim, the baby's father had died in a motorbike accident, and it seemed even less likely that she'd be able to care for her, so Sonia agreed and never saw her firstborn daughter again. Two years after that, Sonia met Charlie MacDonald. Charlie had moved to South Africa from Scotland with his family and was 23 years old, so quite a bit older than 16-year-old Sonia. Of that first initial relationship with the girl, he said he'd really liked Sonia, but he'd been a bit shocked when he heard that she'd already had and given up a child for adoption. This brief first relationship sputtered out pretty quickly, but the pair would meet again later in their lives, and their relationship would then have far-reaching consequences for many people. Before that reunion, though, Sonia would go on to marry Mark Crocker. She had two children with Mark, a boy and a girl, and they were married for several years and living in Nelspreit when Mark was tragically killed in a car accident, leaving Sonia a widow with two young children. Sonia moved in with her sister Adele after this, who was coincidentally married to Mark Crocker's brother. While living in the home with her brother-in-law and sister, Sonia and Mark's brother started an affair. They eventually admitted to Adele that they were in love and moved out together. This pairing, though, did not last very long, and Mark's brother moved back in with Adele. After this, Sonia met and married a man called Armand Kornbrunk. This relationship was very brief, and she seemed not to share the marriage with anyone that knew her, Sonia continued using Crocker as her last name, even though it would eventually emerge she never legally divorced Armand Kornbrink. A few months later, when she and Charlie MacDonald happened to meet again and start a relationship, she said nothing about this marriage to Charlie. At first, Charlie and Sonia's relationship was casual, at least as far as Charlie was concerned. Sonia lived in her own flat, and Charlie lived in his parents' house in Kempton Park. 
His parents had moved to the UK, and he'd been sharing the house with his sister and her husband. But they were preparing to move to the Western Cape, so Charlie would have the whole house to himself. Charlie realized pretty early on in their relationship that he and Sonia wanted very different things. He was happy to have a casual relationship, while Sonia seemed keen on getting married and settling down. He understood this, of course. She had two children and clearly wanted security for them. This was not something Charlie thought he was ready for, and he was concerned that he was going to give Sonia the wrong impression. He was at the point where he was going to break up with Sonia for all the aforementioned reasons, when his sister told him that she thought Sonia may be pregnant. Charlie was stunned. Sonia had told him that she'd had her tubes tied after the birth of her son, and that she couldn't get pregnant. When he confronted Sonia, she said that she was indeed pregnant with his child. Charlie now realized that he could no longer break up with Sonia. He also had serious concerns about his own child living in Sonia's small flat. While she was described as a caring mother by most who knew her, Charlie had seen things that worried him as far as Sonia's mothering skills were concerned. He noticed that despite the children's grandmother supplying an array of fresh vegetables each week, Sonia mostly let those supplies rot away in the fridge, and instead fed her children on quick and far less nutritious meals and takeaways. He also noticed that the children were left to lie in their beds and cots for long periods at a time, and Sonia didn't seem to stimulate them mentally much. As a result, he decided that the best thing to do was to invite Sonia and her children to come and live with him in his house. He had his family's domestic worker Joyce, who lived with them throughout his life, and she could help care for the children and the baby when it arrived. Something unexpected happened when Sonia moved in with Charlie, though. In 1993, he began to fall deeply in love with her. Charlie also found that he quite liked family life, and became very close to Sonia's two children. As Sonia's pregnancy progressed, he also became excited about the arrival of their baby. Adding three and soon a fourth member to his household, though, was a huge financial strain, and Charlie started working extra shifts to bring in more money. As a result, he was rarely at home. And couldn't accompany Sonia to her scans and doctor's visits, but she assured him it wasn't necessary, and returned home each time with news of their baby's growth, and eventually also shared the gender. They were expecting a baby boy. Sonia had initially told Charlie that their baby was due in December, so when Christmas came and went. And Sonia started to tell him that the doctor thought he might have his dates wrong. Charlie became concerned. Sonia's stomach had been quite enormous in the months before Christmas, so he was sure that she was due any day. And then her stomach had changed shape, and started to drop, which seemed an indication she really was close to giving birth. When Charlie eventually confronted Sonia about what was going on. He received some shocking news. 
Sonia said that she'd actually miscarried their first pregnancy, but she'd fallen pregnant again soon after and hadn't wanted to upset him, so she hadn't told him about the miscarriage. This, she said, is why the initial due dates hadn't worked out, but she was sure to give birth in the early months of 1994. The rather extended pregnancy became a bit of a joke among Charlie's friends and family, with some saying that Sonia's baby was going to be born already walking. For the most part, the strange delay was fobbed off, and everyone just waited with excitement for the arrival of the baby. On the 2nd of May 1994, Sonia told friends that she was probably going to have a caesarean section because she was overdue. She told Charlie that she was going to the doctor for a checkup on the 4th of May. That morning, she phoned him and asked him to come and collect her from her doctor's office. She said that she'd gone into labour and given birth while having her checkup, and their baby had been born. Charlie was surprised but delighted and rushed out to collect Sonia. When he arrived at the doctor's office, he was surprised to find his girlfriend standing outside in the cold with their baby. He was initially furious and wanted to go inside the doctor's office and berate them for having left her outside in the cold. Sonia convinced him to leave it, but he would always wonder how differently things may have gone if he'd gone into the doctor's office that day. The surprises for the day were not complete, and Sonia told him that she'd actually had a little girl, and not the boy they'd been expecting. Charlie said that it didn't matter to him, it just took some adjustments as he had been expecting and picturing a boy all along. He was soon madly in love with his new baby girl, though, who the couple named Shannon Allison MacDonald. Allison was the name of one of Charlie's sisters. For the rest of the year, life in the home was pretty blissful. Charlie was amazed at how much he really loved being a family man, and he spent every minute he could with Shannon. As far as he was concerned, Sonia was happy too. She had a lot of help with the children now in Joyce, and they eventually decided that for financial reasons, she would need to go back to work, which she did in November 1994. In the months after Sonia went back to work, she started going out quite a bit at night, leaving Charlie to care for the children. At first he didn't mind, but he soon became concerned that she wasn't just with friends as she claimed to be. Toward the end of 1995, Charlie confronted Sonia with his suspicions, and she admitted that she was cheating on him. She'd met another man at work, and she was in love with him. In December 1995, Sonia moved out. She took baby Shannon with her, but left her other two children behind on Charlie's request. He'd grown very attached to the children and really did not want them to be moving between homes over Christmas. Early in the new year, though, Sonia and Charlie got into an argument and she came to collect her children. This time, though, she left baby Shannon behind saying that she was Charlie's after all, so he could look after her. She told Charlie that he was welcome to take full custody of baby Shannon, and even wrote a letter signing over her parental rights to him. Charlie consulted a lawyer, 
who told him that because he and Sonia hadn't been married at that time in South Africa, he actually had no legal rights to the child. So the letters Sonia had written meant nothing. For Charlie to have full legal custody of the child, he would need to legally adopt her. So he started with that process. The first step was to get a copy of Shannon's birth certificate. Sonia said she didn't know what she'd done with it, so after many attempts, Charlie finally got her to go with him to Home Affairs and fill out a form to apply for a copy. Within a few days, though, Charlie received a telephone call that would change his life forever. The Home Affairs official said that they had no record of a Shannon Allison MacDonald being born. They advised Charlie to get as many documents together as he could and come back and they'd try and sort the matter out. Charlie went to Kempton Park Clinic, where Sonia said she'd received much of her pregnancy care, but they also did not have any record of having treated a pregnant Sonia Crocker. Charlie was now becoming a little more concerned and his next stop was the doctor, at whose office Sonia said she'd given birth. While the doctor was hesitant to provide any of Sonia's private medical information, he was willing to tell Charlie that no child had ever been born in his offices. When Charlie started to discover the inconsistencies around what Sonia had claimed, a friend of his had said to him they'd suspected at one point that Shannon was actually the missing baby Michaela. When the comment was first made, Charlie had thought it completely ridiculous, but now, with there being absolutely no proof that this baby had even been born to Sonia, the stark reality started to sink in. Sonia's sister-in-law, her late husband's sister Jenny, had been helping Charlie to try and figure out what was happening and she was present when Sonia eventually arrived at the house to offer an explanation. At first, she resisted answering, telling Charlie she didn't want to get him involved because, quote, someone had already died because of this, end quote. Eventually, she admitted that the child Charlie had raised as his own for 22 months was not his. In fact, she wasn't even Sonia's. Shannon MacDonald was Michaela Hunter. Sonia claimed that she had not stolen the child. Instead, she said she'd simply been standing outside Marymount Hospital when a man had pushed the baby into her arms and told her to take her. Charlie was heartbroken, but he knew what he had to do. Although he'd vaguely remembered the news around the missing baby, he'd never paid it much attention. He had, after all, been in a very busy and exciting time in his own life at that time. But at that moment, as he looked at the child he knew as Shannon and realised that there was another family out there who'd been heartbroken for almost two years, he knew he had to give their child back. One of Charlie's cousins had recently married a lawyer and he asked the man to come to his house. It was eventually agreed that the lawyer would deliver Michaela to the Benoni police station and he would keep Charlie and Sonia's names confidential. Charlie sobbed as Michaela was placed into the car with strangers. She immediately began to scream 
and would eventually get herself into such a state on the way there that she vomited all over herself and the attorney holding her. Sonia told Charlie she had a trip planned with her new boyfriend and they'd be in Zanin for a few days if anyone needed her. And then she left, leaving complete destruction in her wake. Michaela's file had been through five detectives by the time the CPU pager buzzed on the 15th of February. The detective carrying the pager arrived at Benoni Police Station to be shown a screaming blonde child covered in vomit and inconsolable, who was alleged to be Michaela Hunter. When the lawyer had dropped Michaela off, the policeman present had asked him to find out if his unnamed client would be prepared to make a statement. The lawyer had phoned Charlie, and Charlie had agreed. Initially, he tried to leave Sonia's name out of his statement. This was the agreement. He would hand the child over, and Sonia's name would be left out of it. But Charlie accidentally let her name slip while he was speaking, and it wouldn't take long for police to put two and two together. At 4.30am on the 16th of February, Bruce and Allison received the call they'd waited 22 months for. They were asked to come down to the police station as a child had been handed in that was believed to be Michaela. The initial reunion would not be what they dreamed of, though, as they had no idea whether this was actually their child. They'd only spent a few hours with Michaela at birth, and she'd been born with dark hair and a tan complexion. The child they were presented with was fair and had a halo of blonde curls. DNA would have to be taken to be certain, and the child would have to go into temporary foster care until her identity could be ascertained. So for the second time, Bruce and Alison went home without their daughter. As the couple looked around, they realised that the torrential downpours Johannesburg had been receiving had resulted in large pools of water forming everywhere. Michaela had been returned around pools of water when the couple who had her had begun to argue. Charlie had provided police with some photographs of the child in her early days, and they very closely matched the two photos the hunters had managed to take of Michaela, right down to the marks on her face that had been made by the forceps. When the hunters saw those marks, they allowed themselves to feel a surge of excitement. There was a very good chance that this was their baby. A few days after Michaela was handed over, again in the middle of the night, the hunter's phone rang. This time, it wasn't the police. It was a journalist from the Bielt. The journalist asked the half-asleep couple if they had Michaela back yet, because they just heard that a woman had been arrested and the police were on their way to the hunters to deliver Michaela. Initially, the hunters couldn't quite understand why this would be happening in the middle of the night, but they soon realised it was merely a ploy to create more publicity. They believed, and many others do too, that the people involved in the investigation at that time wanted to make it appear as though they'd rescued Michaela and they were riding in on their white steed to save the day. In reality, all they were doing was waking up a little girl in the middle of the night and delivering her to her parents, 
who had an eight-month-old baby, without even giving them a moment's notice to prepare a bed. Sure enough, within half an hour, a policeman was standing at their door with Michaela. DNA tests had confirmed the identity of this little blonde girl, and she was indeed their baby. As soon as her identity had been confirmed, police had arrested Sonia Crocker, who once run through the system, was thereafter known as Sonia Combrink, much to Charlie's surprise. Although the hunters had initially been cautious about telling their friends and family members that Michaela was possibly safely back until the DNA test returned, with her in their home, they were eventually able to share the news with everyone. Michaela was initially terrified. When she first came home, Alison could immediately see that she was sick, and when they placed her in a bed, she lay completely still and stared straight ahead, curled in a fetal position. The first few days with their daughter were extremely difficult, as she was understandably traumatised. The press had once again descended on the hunter's home, and they couldn't even open the door without flashes going off. Bruce and Alison wanted to keep things as quiet as possible, so only a few friends and family members visited in those initial days. A doctor made a house call at the Hunters to check Michaela over and diagnosed her with bronchitis. This would turn out to be much of the reason she'd been so quiet in the first few days, and as soon as the antibiotics started to kick in, she started to babble away. Michaela was not forming proper words, though, and the hunters found it extremely difficult to understand what she was saying. This led to some frustration from Michaela's end, but eventually they figured out that she seemed to be saying all of her words without the first letter. So book was ook, and cat was at. Michaela very quickly started to bond with Alison and became rather clingy. Alison, of course, didn't mind at all, but having an eight-month-old baby and a very clingy two-year-old overnight did become quite a strain. Unfortunately, Michaela seemed terrified of men, and she initially wanted nothing to do with Bruce. The hunters knew very little at that point about what had gone on in their daughter's life, and they were concerned that she'd perhaps been abused. In the run-up to the trial, though, the hunters were asked to take Michaela for an assessment with a child psychologist, and everything soon made sense. But the real damage that had been done also became alarmingly clear. During a play therapy session, it was revealed that beneath the veneer of a happy child bubbled a deep well of anger. Despite only being two years old, Michaela held a huge amount of anger for one person, Charlie MacDonald, the man she believed was her father. In Michaela's mind, the therapist said, Charlie had lost her and left her with people she didn't know. This was the reason for her violent reaction toward men. She was trying to express her anger at Charlie for having abandoned her. Interestingly, the girl saw herself and Charlie as separate from the rest of that family. The therapist said she had almost no bond with Sonia, and the hunters confirmed that she'd never once asked for the person she believed to be her mother. 
She'd occasionally ask for Charlie or Dada in her mind, but most of all, she'd asked for Joyce, the domestic worker that had served as her nanny from the day she arrived at the McDonald's home. During the play session, when asked to recreate the home she'd come from, Michaela erupted in rage, throwing toys at the psychologist and sobbing. Her utter confusion at why Charlie had given her away was the seed for this anger. When her emotion was spent, the little girl wiped her tears, toddled over to the psychologist and patted her face, apologizing and giving her kisses. The psychologist determined that Michaela was quite far behind in her mental and emotional development. She had not been stimulated near enough, and it would take some time for her to catch up. Everything the psychologist said made complete sense to Bruce and Alison, and although they were sad that their daughter was so deeply impacted, they were also relieved to hear that with time and therapy they could all heal. Charlie MacDonald's entire family was devastated to discover that the little girl they'd believed was their niece and granddaughter was now gone. Charlie's parents, who'd been completely in love with their first grandchild, returned from the UK to support Charlie, who'd slipped into a deep depression. He would contract a stress-induced colon infection and lose 12 kilograms. He initially refused medical care, but his mother and sister eventually talked him into going into hospital, and he was hospitalized for two weeks. Upon his release, he went to stay with his sister in Longaban to try and wrap his head around where he was in his life. With Michaela's kidnapper in custody, police went about building a case against the woman whose arrest had essentially been handed to them on a silver platter. An identity parade was held, and Sonia was identified by some of the other mothers who'd been at Marymount that day, Bruce and Alison. Charlie MacDonald was not charged with anything. Police believed he had indeed been an unwitting victim of the crime. One thing the hunters and the public could not understand, though, was how no one had known that Sonia was not really pregnant. Some of the most astonishing evidence in this regard would be led during the trial, but for the most part, Charlie explained to police that Sonia had said she felt uncomfortable being naked around him while she was pregnant, so he had actually never seen her pregnant belly. Photographs of her during that time and a video from a friend's wedding shows a woman that looks very pregnant. Sonia gave three separate confessions during which she confirmed that she'd never been pregnant and that she just padded her stomach to make it look that way, and she said she'd taken Michaela because she claimed Charlie wanted children and he had specifically wanted a boy to continue his family name. This aspect has been denied by the MacDonald family. They say that Charlie had never told Sonia he wanted children, and he definitely said nothing about continuing the family name. In the run-up to Sonia's trial, Bruce and Alison found the huge amount of public attention extremely difficult to deal with. They were dealing with difficult things like how to get their daughter to respond to the name Michaela rather than Shannon, which in the end was not that difficult because Michaela had never corrected them and easily accepted her real name.
Alison also found it difficult to go out with Michaela because as soon as someone recognised her, the child seemed to become public property and complete strangers would pick her up and cuddle her and give her sweets. At one point, Alison said she really didn't care what happened to Sonia. She just wanted to go back to having a normal life. People were so desperate to see the little girl in person that they went as far as pretending that they were interested in buying the hunter's home, which had been on the market for a while, just to walk around their house and possibly see Michaela. At a bail hearing in April 1996, Sonia was denied bail, but she seemed to want for very little while in the awaiting trial section of prison, as her boyfriend would visit her daily, bringing her food and clothes. Sonia's trial started on the 11th of September 1996. Alison and Bruce testified first and described how much trauma they'd been through in the last two years and how deeply their family had been impacted. The other mothers who Sonia had approached at Marymount also testified, and it emerged that police had only taken statements from many of them three months after Michaela was taken. The security guard who'd been on duty at Marymount that day had also testified. On the day, he told police he'd seen nothing out of the ordinary, but after Sonia was arrested, he'd come forward with a very different story. The man testified that he'd seen a woman leave the hospital that day with a large bag. He even saw the vehicle she'd been driving, a white opal cadet with a red stripe down the side. When asked why he'd not told police this sooner, he said that his manager had told him he shouldn't share information with the police because it would make their company look bad. Sonia had indeed been driving a white opal cadet with a red stripe at that time, and Charlie said if this piece of information had been made public, it's possible that questions may have been asked much sooner. Charlie also testified, explaining he had wholeheartedly believed that Michaela was his child. When Jenny Duplessis, the sister of Sonia's late husband, testified, she told the court that Sonia had approached her in January of 1996, before the truth about Michaela had been revealed, and told her that she wanted to hand her children over to Jenny's care. Sonia said that she was not emotionally in a position to care for her children, and she would pay Jenny 500 rand a month to take care of them. The children, who I have not named here, although they are named in the book, simply to protect their privacy, had been living with Jenny ever since. For a long time, Charlie and his family had wondered whether Sonia actually had been pregnant at some point, and perhaps his baby was out in the world somewhere. Charlie's sister had been pregnant at the same time as Sonia, and she said that they had compared bellies, and she had seen what looked like a pregnant belly with her own eyes. Other people said that they'd seen Sonia's belly move and felt the baby kick. There was also a trip that Sonia had taken while pregnant, which had coincided with the change in the shape and position of her belly. Sonia had gone out to Nelspreit to lay flowers at the site of her late husband's accident, a pilgrimage she made every year. That year, Charlie had insisted she take her sister with her 
as she was so far along and it wasn't safe for her to travel alone. It would later emerge that Sonia had dropped her sister off at a hotel and then disappeared for a few hours. She called Charlie the next day to say she had gotten a flat tire on the side of the road and was stranded. He and many others wondered if Sonia hadn't given birth to a baby she was actually carrying at that time and left the child with someone in Nelsbreit. None of this could ever be proven, though, and when a doctor took the stand to testify, he would completely blow this theory out of the water. The doctor that had testified was one that had treated Sonia for various physical ailments. He said that she had approached him in 1993, which coincided with the time she'd gotten together with Charlie, and asked him to look at reversing her sterilization. He'd assessed her and confirmed that there was no way that the sterilization could be reversed. He'd also confirmed that having looked at how her ovarian tubes had been clamped off, there was absolutely no way that Sonia could have fallen pregnant. There was also no sign that she'd ever miscarried a child. It would also emerge that Sonia had come to this doctor with claims that she believed she had a brain tumour and also that she had diabetes. He conducted a brain scan and blood tests and told her she had neither condition, but she'd still gone back to her friends and family and claimed that she had a brain tumour removed. How Sonia Combrink came to be sterilised at 24 years old is a mystery which was never solved. The sterilisation was conducted by a doctor in 1990 after she gave birth to her son, but there is no information available in the public domain about why the sterilisation was performed on such a young woman. To explain the physical growing of Sonia's belly, which many testified to have seen with their own eyes, the doctor believed that Sonia had been living with a phantom pregnancy. The doctor testified to the medical records of other women who, when living with this condition, convinced themselves that they were pregnant, and the brain's control over the body became so complete that their stomach would grow at the same pace as a pregnancy. They would begin to produce milk, and in some cases, they would even experience labor pains at the points at which their pregnancy would ordinarily be ready to deliver. The phenomenon, the doctor testified, was seen quite commonly in young women in rural areas in South Africa, whose worth as a woman was often measured by their ability to produce children. Many of these women would become so desperate to fall pregnant that they would convince themselves they were, and only at the point of delivery would it be discovered that no fetus was present. Whether or not this is indeed what Sonia was experiencing will never be known, but it seems the only explanation for, for what to some looked like a completely real pregnancy that as far as medical experts were concerned was not physically possible to have occurred. Sonia's defence was paid for by her boyfriend's family and Jacques Snemann and his mother supported her in court. Sonia's own mother was never seen in court, and no one knows whether she attended. A few days into the trial, Sonia's lawyer suddenly pulled a rabbit out of the hat. He put it to the judge 
that his client's rights had been violated before she was even arrested, because the lawyer that had acted on her and Charlie's behalf in delivering Michaela to the police station had taken instruction and agreed not to have their names mentioned, but by telephoning Charlie and convincing him to come to the station, and then Charlie accidentally letting Sonia's name slip, Sonia's attorney-client privilege had been violated. The defence further argued that as a result, everything that had happened after that, including Sonia's confessions, the trial, and all evidence collected, should be dismissed. The judge was dumbstruck. The state was completely taken aback, and the Hunters could not believe what they were hearing. What followed was a trial within a trial, which would create a few precedents in the legal system in South Africa. In 1996, our constitution was only two years old, and the judges tended to err on the side of caution rather than violate anyone's rights. There was a significant period of time when it seemed entirely possible that Sonia Kornbrink may walk free. Eventually, the judge decided after hearing that at the time that Michaela was handed over, the lawyer in question had actually not agreed to act as counsel for Sonia and was rather instructed by Charlie that, to be safe, the first two confessions Sonia had made would be struck from evidence, but the final confession she had made in the presence of a magistrate would be allowed. At this point, both Sonia and her counsel seemed to know that she was going to be found guilty. The hunters and the entire country heaved a sigh of relief when on the 25th of September 1996, 24-year-old Sonia Kornbrink was found guilty of kidnapping Michaela Hunter. She was sentenced to 12 years in prison. As Sonia was sentenced, she turned to see her boyfriend Jacques Snayman leaving the courthouse. She called after him, don't I even get a kiss? The man quickly skipped over and gave her a smooch before she was led down to start serving her sentence. In the book Baby Michaela, the Hunters express their deep desire to live as a normal family and give their daughter a normal childhood. In the years that followed Sonia Kornbrink's sentencing, they appeared to do exactly that. Although many would like to know how their family is doing today, I'm quite happy to say that I have no idea, because they've done a really good job of just going off and living really normal lives. Sonia Kornbrink served eight years of her sentence and was released in 2004. In 2017, her daughter spoke to Hayes magazine about how she struggled to understand why the child she thought was her sister was never coming home, and as she grew, came to realise that her mother was no longer around because of the crime she'd committed. In this article, it is stated that Sonia was living and working in Johannesburg. In the years since Michaela was taken and eventually returned to her family, the country has seen several other similar cases. Just one year after Sonia was sentenced, the nurse family had their baby Zephanie stolen from the bassinet beside her mother's hospital bed. The nurse family would not be as lucky as the hunters in terms of how soon their baby would be returned though, and they would have to wait 
17 years before a chance sighting of a selfie reunited them with their stolen child. Even before Michaela was born, though, another child abduction rocked South Africa when Veronique Adams was taken from her home by her nanny. The girl was 11 months old at the time and one of a pair of twins. This case is quite unique in that fact, because with the girls having been identical, we know exactly what Veronique would look like today at 32. She has, however, still not been found. Across the world, fetal and newborn abductions are sadly quite common. In many of these cases, the perpetrators are women who, like Sonia Combrink, seemingly see a child as the key to their happiness in some way. And I think, if nothing else, this case should make us reflect on how the desperate desire for a child can completely override any logical thought, although whether that really was the motive for this particular crime is questionable. The trauma reaction that a two-year-old Michaela displayed should also cause us pause for thought. So many people believe that if a child is still in the pre-verbal phase, trauma does not affect them. But really, the exact opposite can be true. Before children learn to talk, they are unable to express their emotions and pain, and this inability to express emotion can cause serious long-term issues. I think the fact that Michaela was receiving therapy and that her parents were very well aware that there was a long road ahead of them was a good sign, and there's a very good chance that today she is a happy and well-adjusted young woman. I can't help but think, without taking anything away from the Hunter family, that there were many secondary victims in this crime. I can't quite fathom how it must have felt to have raised a child as your own for two years, as Charlie did, only to discover she was never who you thought she was. That same feeling had to have applied to her siblings, at least to Sonia's older child, and Charlie's parents, who believed that Michaela was their granddaughter. It would be easy to think that because Michaela was returned, that maybe not much damage was done. But no one can give those two years back to the hunters. Michaela was their first child, and they missed everything that first-time parents should experience. They will never be able to share stories of her early development with her, because they simply do not know. And it is in that missing space, that pause in their lives, that their pain still exists. Missing children cases are some of the most horrendous, and many parents do not get resolution. As I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, if anyone closely connected to this case happens to hear this, please do know that I tell this story with the greatest of respect for you and all that you have been through. If anyone would like to share their memories of this case with me, I'm more than happy to chat. If in hearing this story, someone can be provided with perspective in their own story, hope, or even just a moment of pause, to think about what they're doing or the damage they may cause before they do what they have planned, then telling the story has been worthwhile. 
I do hope that the years since Michaela's return have brought healing to all, and that, if anything, you hold on to your loved ones a little tighter, because in the blink of an eye, they can disappear. Thank you for listening to episode 68, Finding Baby Michaela. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with another episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. Bye.